0: Before we get into the show today, I just wanted to thank all of our listeners. You know, we really do appreciate you, and it's because of you that we've had such tremendous growth with the show. Also, thanks to all y'all who have submitted questions that you want asked and answered from our millionaire guests, and those who have written in various suggestions. We're going to start incorporating some of those in, in future episodes. We've got some rapid-fire questions that are going to be incorporated in some future interviews throughout the summer, and we've got a lot of exciting things planned for the show, so Stay tuned for all that.
2: We also appreciate it if you leave us a review on iTunes. If you like the show, it kind of helps us get the word out. Um, And just wanted to to read a recent interview. It says, Great show. Millionaire status is for the masses. I love listening to Jason Clark interviewing everyday millionaires. I'm a huge fan of Thomas Stanley's work on The Millionaire Next Door, and I feel like I'm listening to future chapters of the book with each interview. So again, kind of going back to our goal, that's that's our goal. That's what we're trying to, to do is to tell the story of everyday millionaires. So please feel free to leave us a comment. We greatly appreciate it. Also, if you're looking for a multifamily investment opportunities, uh, we're looking to raise money for another deal. It's kind of in the process in both the Southwest and in the Northeast region. So if you're interested there, please reach out. We'd love to have you. We'd love to talk to you, to connect with you. Uh, we love meeting any of our listeners. So without further ado, let's get into the interview.
0: So on today's show we have Finance Stoic and Finance Stoic's net worth is just over $2 million, primarily in real estate. He has about 400,000 and some change in some investments like Vanguard ETFs. And the rest is in real estate. Most of it right now is in a couple properties, a single family residence that he is building for he and his family and then a couple small Uh, properties that will then become rentals we get into how he was able to finance and purchase several pieces of real estate over the years on credit cards and how that kind of spiraled the growth of his net worth being in the vancouver market of canada and we get into some other investment strategies and his plan for the future to grow his net worth he works in accounting and finance for a large real estate developer in the vancouver area so before Without further ado, let's get into the interview with Finance Stoic. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast. Today on the show, we've got Finance Stoic. Finance Stoic, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you do now?
1: Yeah, sure. I am... Finance Stoic. I blog over at stoiccom I'm a chartered accountant. We've merged with the other designations, so now I'm a CPA in Canada. I spent 10 years at a big four firm, and then I moved into industry and worked my way from controller up to CFO. I now manage a team at work of 25 people. Um, I have a wife, two boys, nine and six years old, and I've been quite lucky to ride the real estate wave in Vancouver, which has allowed us to grow our net worth now to uh, $2.2 million. And so I write about what other people can do to grow their net worth, to save money, to invest, and things to think about along the way. My biggest goal right now that I try to talk about is how to focus on the other side of the income statement, if you will. How can I reduce my expenses, etc., so that I can reach financial independence sooner in my life?
0: Good stuff. So 2.2 net worth, how is
1: that broken up? Great question. I'm just going to pull that up. Most of it, is scarily, I, I use the answer that 150% of my net worth is in real estate and people find that a little odd at first, but uh, effectively that comes down to the use of debt on our properties. So our properties are worth more than my net worth, but we have a reasonable amount of debt on them still. So when I look at pulling it up, predominantly if I break it out from an, from an asset perspective, we have $2.6 million in real estate. We have six hundred and $75,000 in cash right now, and we can get into why that is, and it's actually super frustrating. And we have $450,000 in registered investment accounts, 55,000 of that's for our children, and the remainder for my wife and me. And then on the debt side, we have uh, mortgages between two of our existing properties of $1,630,000, and some credit card and car loans of about uh, 60,000. One thing that I always try to point out with credit cards is we've, um, since I graduated university, we've never carried a credit card balance. So we've never paid uh, interest on a credit card in gosh, 19 years now. Uh, One of the big things with uh, getting financially independent and growing your net worth is don't pay high rate interest to anyone. So we've, uh, we've never done that. Most of that credit card debt is either uh, zero rate credit cards or it's just our month to month balance and then we pay it off at the end of the month and, and start the next month. Almost every single expense we incur is on credit cards to uh, take advantage of points.
0: Good stuff. So of these properties, are they single family homes, personal residence, rental properties?
1: Yeah, great question. So it, it's a combination. Right now, what I'd say we have is we have a primary residence that's being built. So we, we've bought a single-family home in Vancouver, which is, I think it's fair to say, the highest cost of living city in Canada. Uh, so we're building a single-family home, reasonably proximate to downtown, so it's a good location. And while that's being built, we're living in one of our investment properties. Okay. So once that once the house is built, we'll move in we'll have a basement suite that will be rented out and the apartment we're in will be rented out. At the same time, we have also purchased a townhouse that is being uh, built at the moment and will be a rental property when it's finished. So we'll have, ultimately we'll have three suites or, or three units paying rent when everything's completed and we'll have our primary residence, single family house.
0: Cool. And you expect to cash flow pretty good on, on those other two rental units that you'll have?
1: Yes and no. Um, great question. In, in Vancouver, it's very hard to cash flow a property. It's one of the reasons I'm starting to think about how to invest in real estate outside of Vancouver. Whether, for example, that's somewhere in, in Texas, whether it's somewhere in Nashville, somewhere, somewhere where I can cash flow a property. In Vancouver, um, you tend to look at it, and at the end of the numbers, there's, there's a slight amount that you're still putting into the property every month. But when you consider what's my return on investment, including my debt pay down, it's a pretty attractive investment still. So it, it doesn't necessarily cash flow today, but the cash flow or the return on investment, including debt pay down, which um, we refer to generally when we look at it at my company, which is in, in real estate uh, or me personally, we look at our, what's our cash on cash return. And that's positive.
0: I see. So cap rates wise, I mean, are you in the four, five, six, seven, eight range?
1: We're in the we th- We're in the threes. Which, which you can see is the problem okay so if you buy if you buy uh, if you buy residential real estate in Vancouver you're usually around three and a half for cap rates and so it's it's tight like you' you're basically your cap rate is effectively now our, our debt was lower it's climbing and so I would expect that our cap rates will move with time but effectively that makes it so your cap rate is pretty close to your cost of debt.
3: So, how did you get started in real estate? Kind of how and and when did you decide to buy that first property?
1: Uh, Great question. The my wife and I have, and and it's interesting. Sorry, I'm going to digress. It's interesting where our our, my career has taken us and where we've gotten into real estate. But I would say very early on in our relationship, and we've been together since we were, um, she was 16, I was 17, and. It was only for three months. We're actually the same age, but uh, within three months, we were both seventeen. And, and then ultimately, we've right from the very beginning, we've always had a love and a passion for real estate. So what we said we we ultimately envisioned was this was back in the nineties, watching you know Home and Garden television and seeing the very very first people on TV to flip a house. And we said, hey, that's what we're going to do someday. We love the design. We love the numbers. We love all of it. We're going to do that. And so we've, we've had a passion, I'd say, for about 25 years now. And ultimately, what we ended up doing was we bought our first unit in 2002. At the time, we were 24. We closed on it. So we bought it in 2002 and in Canada, you do a lot of what's called pre-sales. They do do them in the US, but my understanding is the rules in the US don't necessarily favor the developer as much, i.e. it's too easy to get out of your contract and you can walk away. Whereas in in Canada, once you sign that pre-sale contract, the deposit is the developers. And if you walk away, the deposit goes to the developer. So we, we signed a pre-sale contract in 2002 and closed on our first unit in 2004, uh, shortly before we got married. And since then, we've now closed on nine units together, some of them selling along the way, obviously, because as I said, we've got three right now. So we've we've sold six of the nine that we closed on. I'd say of the six, five were at a profit, two quite healthy, three reasonable, and one we lost money on.
3: Gotcha. And so I want to ask you about debt. Is there debt on all those properties? Were you out of debt, personal debt, I guess, before you bought the first or what's your mindset on that?
1: Well, when we bought the when we bought the first, I mean, if you two can go back and imagine uh, for your listeners, I think they know you're both accountants as well, and everyone knows when you when you start in an accounting firm, you're not making much money. Generally, what you can count on is 10 to 15 percent raises per year, but you might start at, for example, in Vancouver, you start at thirty six thousand dollars, and you go up 10 to 15 percent a year every year. So when we started, when we bought that home gosh, we were probably both making about forty two thousand dollars a year. so we we really didn't have much in the way of income. We didn't have much net worth. and on that first home, uh, her parents lent us twenty thousand or not lent. her parents gifted us twenty thousand dollars and my parents gifted us ten thousand dollars. So between that thirty thousand, it covered. It, it was for two things: one, it was for the purchase of that home, and two, it was for our wedding. Um, so they were they were more looking at it as here's money for your wedding, and we said, well, we're going to buy a house, and so we we bought the house and paid for the wedding out of that thirty thousand, and then we took on definitely a certain amount of debt um, along the way. We've always used. A lot of leverage and I I can get into a little bit of an odd way that we use that leverage if you want me to dive into it.
3: Yeah, yeah, go ahead.
1: Okay, Um, now I'm not necessarily advocating other people ever do this but when people say what's sort of the greatest thing you've ever done from an active, there's uh, 0% MBNA credit cards So what they are is you pay a 1% fee at the start of the credit card, and then you pay zero interest for a year. And at the end of the year, you either pay down the credit card, or there's a process where you renew, get a new credit card, transfer the balance, pay your 1% fee, and then again pay 0% interest for a year. So we've now gotten to the point where, we're carrying probably fifty to sixty thousand dollars on those MBNA credit cards, and what we did was we used them to pay for the down payments on that townhouse. Bought it. Each year, we then said, "Okay, now we have a year to save fifty to sixty thousand dollars." Saved everything we could, paid off the balance, got a new card, transferred the balance. And then ultimately I would say we bought that townhouse and we bought two investment units all with uh, deposits that were either savings and or those credit cards. That townhouse we sold for $1.6 million. So we made uh, $900,000 cash on that transaction. Uh, one of the apartments that we bought, we bought for $250,000. So our, Deposit at 20% that went on the cards would have been about $50,000. And ultimately, uh, that's now been appraised at $500,000. And then we had another condo that we bought that we sold for a gain of about $150,000. So those MBA credit cards have been probably the oddest but best leverage we've ever used in our lives.
3: Wow. So real estate's been good to you.
1: Yeah, real estate's been good. <laughs> I mean, over over the last seven years, it's easy to say that it's doubled. Um, I would say the the only spot where it's been bad to us, and it you know it may seem odd, but in 2016, when we made the decision to flip from townhome to single family home. That was quite a hard decision for us. My wife said, "Hey, look, we've got three bedrooms and an office. We really don't need much more." And what I'd seen in real estate, and you guys may see this in the areas you are, single-family homes that are proximate to the city are, are a dying breed. Like everything's about densification, right? So the it's not like they're going to add more single-family stock into Vancouver because there's nowhere to add it. So you're just going to see the single family depleting. So I work for a real estate developer. And whenever I would talk to guys and say, what do you think I should be doing? Everyone would say, well, hey, single family is never never going to be more. It's only going to decline. So if you're going to do anything, sell your multifamily and buy single family. So we did do that in 2016. And then within one month of us switching from multifamily to single family, Vancouver bought Uh, brought in a foreign buyer's tax, which charged anyone that was non-local resident 15% on real estate acquisitions. And so immediately you had a 15% drop, not immediately, but within six months, you had a 15% drop in single-family home prices. Mm. And what ended up happening was single-family basically recovered to that number, but it's never gone up. And that's been two years now. And multifamily, I would say over that time period is up probably 30 to 40%. So we thought we were doing the right thing, flipping from multifamily to single family. Had we not done it, uh, A, our life would have been better because right now we're living in a uh, 750 square foot apartment with uh, two boys and my wife and I, and it's only two bedrooms, so it's tight. Um, so we would have been in our townhouse for those two years, but our townhouse probably, I would say conservatively went up in value three to $400,000 and our single family home stayed flat. So wow. that was, that was definitely a loss. And, um, but not a loss, like given, you know, you're going to live in that home for 20, 30 years and your permanent house, I don't really consider it a loss per se.
3: Right, right. So your current real estate holdings now, how much does that cash flow a month?
1: Right now, we don't, ca- and this is the hard part right now, we don't cash flow anything because we're, we're, one of them is being built, the other one we're living in. And so that's, you know, let's say 2500 bucks for a mortgage. And the other one is being built, so we're probably minus $5,000 a month. But I, that's a construction loan, so it's just capitalizing to the loan. So we're probably out of pocket 2500 bucks a month right now between the three properties.
3: And then what do you expect it to, is it to rent for once it's completed?
1: So once the house is completed, I would estimate our mortgage will be about $7,500 a month we'll rent out a basement suite for 2000 we'll have probably on the other two homes. We'll have a mortgage probably in the neighborhood of 4,000 and they'll rent out for just over that. So we'll probably be between our single family house and our two investment properties will probably be a net net outflow 5,000 a month.
3: So, I just want to make sure. So the $7,500, is that on a house, the mortgage payment you're expecting?
1: That's pretty crazy. Well, our our mortgage, when we're done that house, will probably be in the neighborhood of – and keep in mind, part of it is I like as high a mortgage as I can because I can use the cash to invest, right? So I have opportunities at work that can generate me a higher return than the cost of the money. So one of two things will happen. I'll have a I'll have a certain amount of my mortgage will be fixed, and the other part will be a home equity line of credit. While my capital is invested, I'll draw the mortgage up to probably in the neighborhood of two point one to two point two million, and then when when the investments are finished, I could probably pay it down to $1.4 or
3: 1.5 Okay. I wanna let me go. go ahead.
1: No, uh, I was just gonna clarify why it's so large. I mean, when when we're done, the total cost to build that property will probably be in the neighborhood of three point one million. So even if the mortgage is two point two million, that means our equity in that project is nine hundred thousand dollars. So it's not um not a small amount.
3: Sure. I want to go back to the. Uh, the investment amount. So you guys have four hundred and fifty thousand investments. Can kind to of, kind of shift from real estate here? How yeah. is that invested specifically there? The
1: the fifty five thousand. Yeah. So uh, it was actually if I I was a little too quick. It's four sixty of the four Oh five is my wife and I, and that's in our RSPs. Some of that's her at work. The majority of that is with a local um, wealth management firm, if you will. So we, we put it with them for a couple reasons. I'm not exactly comfortable going full ETF, which I know a lot of people in the financial independence sphere tend to do, is say, hey, just stick your money in Vanguard or, or some other low-cost index. That, that, for some reason, gives me a lot of distress. I have, and I'd love to hear what you two think, but I have a little fear that if there is a market correction, and everybody's invested in ETFs, which effectively are the market, and people start to panic, it can be a self-fulfilling downward spiral, and I don't really want to be part of that. So with the portfolio I have with the wealth manager, only a certain amount in equities, and then they also have alternative investments, they have real estate, things of other nature to kind of diversify the portfolio a, a fair bit more. So that's the 405 that's my wife and I. And with our our boys, it's 55,000 of ETFs and mutual funds and what's called a registered education savings plan. So you put a certain amount in each year and the government will match up to a certain dollar amount and then it grows tax-free for your children to go to school someday. So basically this 55,000 they're 9 and 6 right now. This 55,000 is the start of their college uh, fund.
0: Cool. So you mentioned that you had a ton in cash too. I think it was over 600,000. Is that part of waiting for an opportunity, building these this house? What's what's kind of the uh, thought process
1: with all that cash sitting on your balance sheet right now? Yeah, we're at um We're at $670,000 and it's exactly uh, what you said. It's a bit of all of that. It was largely to build the house, right? So we knew that we had a construction loan, but for, for listeners who aren't aware, generally when you have a construction loan, what the, what the bank says is, Hey, this is going to cost X amount. We're willing to lend Y, And the difference between X and Y is your equity contribution into the project and that has to go in before we give you money. So we've had a fair amount of cash on the sidelines knowing that we have to fund some of the costs of construction until the bank will give us the money for their portion of the construction. And so it's on the sidelines waiting for construction. If I woke up tomorrow and the market was down 40%, I would probably peel out half of it and stick it in the market and use it as dry powder, but it's really sitting there to fund the construction.
0: I see. So where do you go from here? Do you have a target net worth that you want to obtain or, or some sort of passive income at some juncture later down the road?
1: All, all of the above. I would say I'm targeting a net worth of, Six million dollars. Where I would see that would be a full, fully paid off house, and then three million in uh, in investments. So if I if I look at the the four percent rule as an example, which if people aren't aware, the idea of the four percent rule is that if you withdraw four percent of your portfolio every year, you should be able to live off your investments into perpetuity for the rest of your life. So if I look at the 4% rule and I say I have $3 million, then I'm, I'm pulling 120 grand from my investments a year as income. And I can either live off that or supplement that with part-time roles, jobs. Um, Ideally my target is to get there by 46 45 would be actually, well, 44, 45 would be ideal so that we can effectively uh, either retire or pivot in our careers at that point and do what we love for reasons we want to, not because we have to.
3: Do you remember at what age you hit your first million?
1: Yes. It was 37.
3: And then when did you hit two?
1: thirty somewhere in the 38 to 39 range
3: Wow so that was a quick the two one years
1: to two, later? The, the one to two was quick yeah if I go um, right so if I go back to an earlier uh, net worth statement like in 2016 we hit the first million it's saying in March of 2016 and by December we were 1.9 million Wow. Right, And when I look back, we started tracking guys. we started tracking in March of this is where it gets fun. We started tracking in March of 2015. We were at 600. So within a year we went 600 to a million, and then with a year within a year of that we hit two million. and then we've we've really over the last year done not much wow. like one a hundred grand or 200 grand over the last year. Uh,
3: that's quick. So, with all these real estate deals you're doing and, and your company's doing, what are your target IRRs? Or if you're measuring cash on cash, what are your kind of your target metrics?
1: I want to return a net of about at least ten to twelve percent a year between all of the investments, and that's a combination of whether I think you know. What do you guys? Uh, let me flip it back. What do you guys target just from your general market investments?
3: Uh, I mean, it kind of depends. So last year S and P was at what twenty percent or something, but yeah, yeah, but what I would mean, it
1: targeted, like seven or eight percent.
3: Yeah, I mean, probably higher. I'd say ten, okay. twelve, if I were to really, you know, if I were to go out twenty, thirty years or something. Jace, would you agree? Okay.
0: Yeah, I'd say you know over the S&P roughly has been you know 10 to 11 depending on who wants to argue and risk adjusted and everything else you know you're in that 10 to 12 bucket depending on which 10 to 20 okay. 30 year period you look at
1: so i would i would balance i would say uh, i usually only count on my portion that's docs at about 8% and then i look at it and say some of my real estate investment, like lending opportunities that I get, I target, and I I target because we underwrite it this way, I target a 20% return. And so when I blend it all out, I think it'll be somewhere in that 12 to 15%. And if you're in there, you're doubling every five to six years, which is, is a nice number. So if I can do that, that's sort of why I'm looking out six years, or seven years and saying I'd like to get to um, 6 million is using that, using that doubling function and then saying, okay, also I'm going to save between, you know, our, our earnings and our spending. But in that five, six years, I I should be able to save a million bucks. Yeah. Yeah.
3: All right. I want to do some, uh, some rapid fire questions with you here that we've started doing on our latest interviews. Excellent. So, And so, most expensive jeans you've ever purchased?
1: Great question. It's Banana Republic, but the outlet mall. So probably (laughs) six, probably sixty dollars.
3: Okay. Most expensive pair of shoes?
1: Most expensive pair of shoes? Oh, oh no! Because I ruined them shortly after I bought them. I bought a pair of uh, Tod's after receiving a very large bonus and so they were six (laughs) hundred dollars and my wife said I'm never allowed to do it again because I didn't protect the suede and they're ruined oh that hurt uh
3: most expensive car (laughs) Uh,
1: most expensive car oh you're killing me uh the one that I bought last year I think I spent 45,000 dollars I bought uh a slightly used car that was sixty, sixty-five thousand before um, before being slightly used.
3: Okay. Uh, most expensive meal out that you have paid for?
1: That is a tricky question. Uh, some of the companies I've worked for play various games to pay for bills, so it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of two thousand dollars.
3: And that's with coworkers or something like credit
1: card roulette we're talking about? Exactly. Like a credit card roulette or a different variation of it. (laughs) You you, you come out the loser. (laughs) What about non-credit card roulette? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Probably in the neighborhood of, let's say, um, five, six hundred bucks. No, my gosh, wait, sorry. Um, Oh, shoot. Probably in the neighborhood of closer to a thousand bucks. Okay. One of the, th- and can I clarify quickly on that one? Yeah, 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 of course. One of the things I've started to do with my wife is when we do travel in the world, I look at the uh, there's a San Pellegrino top fifty restaurants in the world, and I've been trying to get her to book us at those restaurants, and so we're we're um, I'm getting lucky enough to try some pretty amazing food, but it usually comes at a very steep price. Um, <laughs> those trips
3: you guys are
1: are foodies yeah we're foodies yeah
3: so what's worth spending the money on and and what's not worth spending the money on
1: this is a great question one of the things i'm trying to focus on in my dive into stoicism is to learn to appreciate what i already have so ideally the spending of the money is just for the bare necessities and things that I need with my family, experiences with them, and less about materialistic goods. So, more and more, I would say spending money on material items to make yourself happy, that spending money on certain experiences that you get to enjoy with multiple family members. You know, for example, taking your mother and father to a to an nfl football game when they're in their 60s and they've never been to one
3: yeah. that
1: that to me has value
3: yep yep i'm with you there okay what's what was your uh, high school and college gpa
1: oh oh my gosh this is gonna be embarrassing <laughs> uh, i was i was a complete dumb dumb in high school the i didn't even take any academic courses like i'm Legit keyboarding, information management, business management, accounting, uh, social sciences, computer science, nothing academic. And I still managed to get pretty much exactly a 3.0, uh, which is a B, right? Yep. No more, no less. And then in in college, my first couple years, I managed to pull that up closer to a 3.7, uh, an A minus, I would say. And then once I got hired by my big four firm, uh, my last semester dropped right back to a three. My last <laughs> well,
3: once you, once you secured it,
1: yeah. Once I got the job, it was back to back to basics.
3: And so, I guess your first job out of college was was accounting, and, and what was the salary on the first job?
1: Thirty six thousand dollars.
3: Thirty six thousand. Awesome. So, what advice do you give to somebody who's who's you know looking to? To grow financially, to to grow their career. What maybe mistakes have you have you made, and what advice do you give somebody?
1: Put yourself into as many sink or swim situations as you can. And so that's always putting your hand up and saying, "I want to do that. I want to be the woman on that job. I want to be the man on that job." Always put your hand up and say you're willing to do it. Even if you don't know how to do it, we're all bright enough. Every single human being has the capacity to look on uncle Google and figure out how to do something after they've said yes. So say yes to every opportunity that gets put in front of you and then figure out how to actually do what you said you could do. And, and more importantly, do it. So put yourself into a sink or swim situation and then swim.
0: How many hours a week do you think you work on average
1: right now? Uh, like right now I feel like I'm quite low. Like I'm probably in the 50 to 55 hour range. Um, there have been periods where I would do 85 to 90 hours for a sustained period of time.
0: uh, Where can people find, find you or find out more about you?
1: You can find me at, finance stoic.com i'm on twitter at at finance stoic i believe let me just double check that at finance stoic Yep, yeah, at finance stoic on twitter and those are the two best spots to get me if people have questions or they, or they want something to think about feel free to reach out to me at finance stoic at gmail.com and i can chat with you on there
0: Good stuff. Finance Stoic with a net worth just over $2 million. Thanks for coming
1: on the show today. Thanks for having me, guys. It was awesome. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.